0: This week's episode is sponsored by Boost. In today's world, students have to keep up with more. More assignments, more demands, more to remember. That's why schools love Boost. It's an outcomes-driven notification app that connects securely to Canvas to give students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes. Best of all, It's completely free and requires no training for teachers or staff. Visit www.boost.education to learn more. In the library world, 2004 was a big year. The tech giant Google announced that it had made a deal with a handful of the world's largest libraries. At Harvard, Stanford, the University of Michigan, and the University of Oxford, Oh, and the New York Public Library. Here was the plan. The company would scan millions of books in their collections, so they'd be fully searchable in the Google search engine. It seemed like the beginning of a new era, when scholars and the public could make new connections and discoveries in the kind of mass digital library that had previously been the stuff of science fiction. But the actual plan would soon turn out to be far more controversial than its organizers probably ever imagined. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at Ed Surge. Today, we're going to hear the story of this ambitious book scanning project that it started actually nearly 20 years ago, sparked an epic legal battle among publishers, authors, and technologists, and that now seems nearly forgotten. To do that, I connected with Roger Schoenfeld, co-author of the new book, Along Came Google, A History of Library Digitization. Roger is a longtime leader in the library community, and he's a program director at Ithaca S a nonprofit education consultancy. I came away wondering why people don't talk more about this bit of recent ed tech history and what lessons could still be learned from it. Here are highlights from the discussion remind us before google came in um the to to do this effort that you all talk about um what was kind of there was a time not too long ago where it was pretty rare to have a full text of a book scanned um and available right
1: right right not that long ago at all you know 15 years ago it was pretty uncommon actually um and so the way that the way that Folks discovered books was really different right you browsed a card catalog or you you know uh, went to a bookstore you browsed the stacks it was a very very different experience in just a, just a short amount of time how, how, how extensively that's changed
0: so remind us what was it that Google um, did that um, that sort of set off you know that that, that, that just sort of their attempt to make a big change in, in when it comes to digital libraries and and texts.
1: Well, so, I mean, there had been been a whole series of efforts to digitize um, library materials beforehand, right? And I think that's something that's really important to bear in mind, right? Our story isn't just there was zero and then there was Google. Our story is that there was actually a lot of activity taking place. The Internet Archive was active, Carnegie Mellon University was active, lots and lots of individual libraries, library collaborations were active in digitization. But the efforts were Um, they, they were um, separated, they were, uh, they didn't scale, Uh, they didn't um, aggregate to one another, they were often risk averse and concerned about digitizing Mm -hmm. copyrighted uh, materials that were still in copyright, there were all sorts of limitations. And that's to take nothing away from the great work that was that was done. And then along came Google. And what, and what actually happened was that this dream that that librarians and technologists and others had for decades of expanding access to knowledge and making, you know, making access to book collections widespread, that that dream found the catalyst that was necessary in order to make it happen at the scale that was necessary to, 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 to potentially achieve the vision. So that was the big shift that happened was there was, there was a catalyst that that allowed things to scale up, um, and the and the catalyst had you know uh, had a couple of elements to it. I think I think some people um, are really fo- will really focus on well, gosh, Google had unlimited money, you know, co- uh, co- comparatively speaking, but in in fact the the amount of money that Google invested was an amount of money that. Um, Some foundations might have been willing to invest that certainly 50 or 100 universities collectively easily could have invested. So it was not actually the, the the literally the amount of money that they brought. What they and they also brought some technology. They engineered some new ways to do book scanning faster and more effectively. But but I would argue that the thing that Google brought was actually a kind of catalytic role of saying this is going to happen. And this is going to happen quickly, and we're going to work with whoever's willing to do it with us. And they they instead of trying to do something in a kind of consensus-driven collaboration across dozens or a hundred major university libraries, they said, let's find five that are willing to work with us, and we're going to use you know secrecy and you know other kinds of approaches to 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 get these five to to move on the speed that we want to move on, on, you know, if I can call it this on sort of a Silicon Valley timeline rather than a more traditionally academic timeline.
0: And so the Google book project was a big splash when it was announced as they were going to digitize millions of books at, at a handful of libraries, university libraries, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think it, I think it was a, it was a big splash. I think it was a big surprise I think for a lot of people, both inside of higher education, it was eye opening wow we could we could do this, this could get done. Um, I think it was also uh you know folks had uh you know there were all sorts of concerns like are these the are the right books going to get digitized? are the French language books going to get digitized are the you know will it be you know sufficiently diverse in terms of what we're looking to achieve in a in a comparatively universal library. So there were, there were concerns as well, but the, probably the biggest concerns came, um, you know, came from the publishers, right? The publishers had been working really closely with Google before the library digitization project came out to create an alternative to the Amazon bookstore. And if you remember back then, uh, you know, everyone was really concerned about Amazon's monopoly uh, in book selling. Which, which, by the way, compared to its role today, uh, you know, Amazon was a shadow of its current, of its current self back then. Um, and so anyway, everyone was concerned about Amazon's monopoly. And so the publishers were really, really excited that Google was going to get into the book discovery and book sales business. And so they had, the publishers had all started working with, with Google on that. Uh, but in parallel, Google was working with the libraries in secrecy um, and so that big splash that came out well, raised some eyebrows and, and eventually some lawsuits uh, from the publisher and, and author communities.
0: Seems like um, there was a bit of a, um, a moment where maybe there could have been more a sense of collaboration, but instead some of the Silicon Valley speed and the secrecy ended up being a, it sounds like it ended up causing some mistrust or... Or um, ill will maybe among people that might have been otherwise uh, on board
1: well, uh, certainly, certainly that might be the case with the publishers. it's hard to it's hard to know about that. I do think that some of the publishers um, there probably could have been ways to manage um, manage this with the publishers differently. But I think with the libraries and the universities, honestly, I don't think that a more transparent and open approach to this. I mean, this is a very controversial view, I suppose, but I'm not sure that a more transparent and collaborative approach to bringing the universities uh, into a project like this one would have actually resulted in as effective an outcome in terms of the volume of materials that were actually digitized. It might have had other output, uh, outcomes that would have been better, but from me- in terms of measuring it from from the volume of digitization. I mean, University of Michigan digitized substantially its entire library collection, an enormous research library in partnership with Google. And one of the reasons why that happened, not speaking specifically of Michigan, but the all of the partners was a sense that they were special, that Google had chosen them. And that produced, of course, a sense of jealousy by those that weren't chosen. And there were all sorts of really interesting um, emotions that were generated through the process of this announcement and then the effort eventually to bring some additional libraries in to round out some of the gaps that, that the first group of libraries, you know, would, would inevitably have had. It was a very, very interesting dynamic. And I, I, I think that it was a very different kind of approach to collaboration than certainly in research libraries you had been used to seeing before then. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons for better and for worse why why so much got done in the, in this case.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I think you. Yeah, it's not like you're making Google out to be an uh, uh, only a villain or only a hero. There's just a complicated um, sense in this story from the book. So you do say though in in the introduction that the story of this um, Google book scanning. It it is the story, as you say, of the limitations of disruptive techno-solutionism. What what do you mean by that? Well, I think
1: Google came into this engagement thinking that the problem was a problem of not having scanned enough books quickly enough, Um, which was true. That was a part of the problem. But... The underlying problem was a copyright problem okay so in the sense that in the sense that there was a public policy problem which was that you couldn't just scan all of these books and just do anything with them that you might want Um, now Google's approach to copyright at the time um, had Google had been very successful Google and other search engines had made uh, an argument that they could scan anything on the web on an opt-out basis, so anyone's website could opt out of being scanned by Google, but if you didn't opt out, you were automatically in the index. And they took the exact same mindset to a much more settled area of law around you know around reproducing published books. And they found that there were some real headwinds. And so this the techno solutionism, um you know, I think as 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 we use that term was really meant to say that it wasn't just a technical problem. Um, There were technical solutions that Google brought uh, in terms of its engineering, uh, engineering talents in terms of its, uh, you know, ability to drive, uh, drive this project forward from a project management perspective that were, were substantial improvements on what came before. But the public policy issues were the reasons why no one had previously been willing to invest this scale of resources into scanning, because they understood the copyright problems and weren't sure that 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 there was a a policy solution and you know that of course takes us into the the lawsuits and the efforts to settle to settle those those
0: lawsuits you know it's important i i don't want to spend too much time on this but i think our listeners will need to understand the term orphan works which seems the crux of a lot of of the challenge here which is that a library like the University of Michigan holds millions of books And obviously there were publishers that put them out, but in many cases, the, um, it would be actually a technical challenge to like track down all the publishers and get permission when, um, and why is that? And and this is the idea of orphan works that there's somehow, um, you know, it's kind of a a jargony sounding term, but actually I think it's kind of a clever one. What, so tell people if they don't know it, you know, what is this idea of orphan works and why do libraries end up having so many of them?
1: Yeah. So, so the orphan work problem is the problem of books that are still in copyright as best as someone can tell, but that can't, where you can't figure out who to ask for copyright from. Okay, they're so not you, in the you, public
0: domain, but they're
1: not in the they, public domain. They're still protected by the law. But you want to scan them. You might even be willing to pay the, the rights holder uh, for the right to do that. But you can't figure out who that person is or that company is. So the the way that this happens, right, is that, you know, we th- we think today of like, oh, there's, you know, a few big publishing houses in the US and then there's a few, you know, big trade publishing houses and then there's a f- some university presses. But in fact, there's, there's thousands, tens of maybe hundreds of thousands of publishers uh, of, of companies that have over the course of time published the books that sit in the libraries. Um, and even the ones that are U S based have a long, complicated ownership history. They've merged, they've been acquired. They've in some cases, uh, they've, uh, uh got, just gone bankrupt. They've gone out of business. And so when you see that little copyright statement on the copyright page, it says, you know, copyright 1972 by the, you know, such and such publisher. And you say, great, let me, let me Google them and look them up and I'll, I'll ask them for permission, but you can't do that because they don't exist. Right? So that's, that's the orphan works problem. Um. In a nutshell.
0: And yet there is technically a law you're breaking if you just go and do whatever you want with it.
1: Right. And, um, and, and that's one of the challenges that, that existed, that existed here. Um, so, so the publishers that, that, that you know about, you know, it's just a financial transaction. It's a business transaction. Can you license the rights from them or not? Um, but the publishers that you can't find or don't know about, you can't do that. With them, so
0: so it sounds like it's it's funny because I saw in your book you mentioned that in a way Google was seeing this just like Apple did with the iTunes Music Store that they just went to the the music publishers and they made a deal and um, there wasn't I guess Google it seems like went in with the thought that they would do that but that it wasn't so simple in this case
1: it wasn't so simple for for a couple of of reasons um, and you know wh- one of one of which is that. Is that the the yeah the the orphan works were a huge barrier, um, but you know I also think that there are you know there are so many different publishing houses the complexity of who owns what what's in copyright what's out of copyright how do you even determine um, the the rights there's a there are the the I I think for for many observers even inside of libraries and publishers this process of of grappling with uh, with these 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 sort of legal tussles around the Google project, where people learned a lot about just how complicated this uh, this landscape was is
0: after the break, what happened? After Google rushed in, deciding to just kind of ignore the shaky legal grounds of its library scanning project? Stay with us. Every teacher and parent has been there before. A student with great potential just failed to turn in their big assignment. Now, doing well this semester just became a lot harder. If only you had the time a few days ago to check in and remind them what was coming due. That's where Boost helps thousands of students keep up and succeed. Boost is an outcomes-driven notification app. Boost gives students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Backed by peer-reviewed and published research, Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes all while saving teachers and parents' time. Boost sends students intelligent reminders about assignments that are upcoming but not yet turned in. And Boost is already used by students in middle schools, high schools, colleges, and grad schools to succeed every day. Boost is completely free for schools to activate and free for students and parents to download and use in the Apple or Android app stores. Visit www.boost.education to make sure your students never miss an assignment again. Now back to the episode. Okay, so Google rushes in and they're willing to spend the money. They're willing to risk the, just go for it with the legal issues. And then they did get some pushback. They got
1: some pushback. Uh, Pushback came in a number of forms. You know, one form, probably the first form was from the publishers who were, uh, and and authors who sued who sued them, and there was a series of lawsuits and um you know uh, without getting into the into the weeds um you know in in the end, there was a settlement agreement before 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 the 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 um the claims were fully litigated, there was a proposed settlement, and the parties basically proposed in a nutshell not only to settle the lawsuit and you know a little bit of payment to make it go away that kind of settlement which is usually what we see they actually proposed an entirely new business in the context of the settlement they said look we've got Google here who's got all the scanned materials or will soon and the publishers here who own essentially all the rights and what if we think of the settlement not just as uh, and it was a class action certified lawsuit so if it was settled Um, it could be settled on behalf of all publishers, not just on behalf of the ones that were involved directly in the litigation. And so what if we, what if we put in place the provisions to essentially create a Google operated bookstore, uh, as as an outcome of the lawsuit, um, great idea. That's the part that would have actually been perhaps most transformative of the entire process. Um, had, had that settlement gone through, we would have seen, you know, today, something like 10 or 15 million books that were available, um, in, in libraries around the country it would have been, uh, something that you as an individual pre- presumably could have subscribed to, or, so it would have achieved that iTunes vision, right, that you were, you were referencing a minute ago, that sort of making books into a sort of streaming-like service, subscri- subscription streaming-like service. Um, but... But what happened instead was that there was great opposition to this settlement. There was grave concern about the antitrust implications of having Google as substantially the only party that had, the, the only company that could create such a bookstore. And so all of the concerns that the publishers had had about Amazon's monopoly. Were now displaced onto academia. Now it was ac- members of academia and um, in some of the uh, you know uh, you know uh, potential competitors of Google's that were deeply concerned about Google having a monopoly in books, and so there was great opposition. The Justice Department eventually decided to weigh in against the settlement agreement uh, on on a kind of co- competition basis, and the judge in the case rejected. The settlement agreement, very unusual outcome, right? For a lawsuit, usually if the parties want to settle, the judge says, "Great, settle." But in this case, the judge said, "The judge said no." Um, the parties went went back. Google and the publishers went back. They renegotiated a much, much lower stakes settlement agreement. And today, there is basically no access through Google um, or anyone anyone other than the publishers directly through Amazon on a, on a, uh, uh, title by title basis, there's no other access to all this knowledge. There's no, there's no streaming access to all of the published books in, uh, in, in, in our libraries. So in that sense, this vision of universal access, um, that so many librarians, so many technologists brought into their, their work that we document well before Google got involved, but certainly in the Google project, uh, that vision was was not achieved. Lots of good came out of this project, but that vision was not was not ultimately met.
0: Now there have been other, as you mentioned, um, there there have been other entities since since that settlement uh, failed. There have been other attempts to create uh, a centralized um, digital library um, and. Uh, there was one, um, uh, the Public Library for America. I don't want to say it wrong. Digital Public Library of America, and um, it, it sounds like you know. And you, but you note that these haven't really taken off either. And I wonder. It seems like you know. Is it the case that a central um, approach is the right way to go, or or is there something else that could happen?
1: Well. I think we don't necessarily need to have a central approach in terms of all the books living on a single server, right? In that, in that respect, but I think we can see if we think about iTunes or maybe Spotify is even a better example, those kinds of services, I think we can see the deep benefits in a digital environment of having access to all of the content through a single discovery and access, you know, portal, if you want to use that, that somewhat dated terminology, Um, you can see some of the ways that recommendations can get generated algorithmically that, um, search and discovery can get, can get improved dramatically. So, um, so I think the question that, that we're faced with for, um, oh, and let, and let me just say a single business model. So the customer only has to do business with one provider, right? So the, that was probably the greatest benefit that Google and, and the publishers through that first settlement agreement were proposing was that there would be a single front door for, for all the books period. And, um, and you know, right now we're in a much more scattered environment, probably the entity that is doing the most, um, uh, uh, uh sort of focused ag- aggregated work today is the internet archive, uh, which is a massive, you know, a really substantial collection of books. Um, but you know i think i think one of the one of the lovely elements of that first settlement agreement that google had negotiated was that it was it it, it had it gone through um, the publishers were on board with it there wasn't a situation where they were going to get sued for the, for you know going going in that direction they'd solved the copyright dilemma it was through a lawsuit but they actually solved the public policy issue or at least they thought they had and uh, we don't we don't have that today
0: what is your um outlook then for for where things could go from here?
1: Well, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing in terms of the um in 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 terms of the consumer market, you know, I think Kindle has uh, I don't I don't want to use words like monopoly, but you know, Kindle has an extremely strong um presence, so the, you know, Kindle portal has proved to be that single point of access to you know, currently available books at at least those are are you know provided. Uh, there's a few different models you can use for the Kindle, but you know none of them get you everything for a single single monthly low cost. You know that that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's actually for the best. On an institutional, there's also a very very important institutional market for books as well through libraries, right? And the institutional market is really really fragmented. At the you know at the research library level, uh, research libraries will often have you know dozens of different providers, maybe hundreds in some cases of different providers for for ebooks
0: It, it sounds like importantly um, University of Michigan um, ended up negotiating the rights to have a copy of its own um, its own copy of the files, right and that and then Hathi trust this this nonprofit was born out of that. Um can you say something about that?
1: Yeah, so so HathiTrust was that's exactly right. So Michigan had the foresight to ask for a copy of uh, all, a digital copy of all of the digitized books. And that was the seed. And and the other libraries eventually got that as well. And those those digital copies were the seed of what what eventually came to be called HathiTrust, which at first was just supposed to be a preservation platform for uh, for for the library's copies of the books. And there was a kind of interesting drama around the creation of HathiTrust. It was it shows actually some of the same lessons. I think that Google's role as catalyst played in the in in in, in the in the digitization initiative. Uh, similarly, the University of Michigan said we need a collective place to to store and preserve these digitized books, and the library community should get on board with us. But if you don't want to, we're going to do it ourselves. And that was a, an uncomfortable dynamic within the library community, very used to kind of collaboration and consensus-based decision-making and a little bit of ruffled feathers, a little bit of bad blood that, that happened. But the result, which is more important, the result is that the libraries controlled a copy of all the digital files. And that's a very, I, I can't emphasize how different of an outcome that is than for other kinds of media. Okay, so when you look at, um, you know, we're talking about streaming uh, uh, music, for example, libraries don't control a copy of those files, it's just in the cloud, right? And so here where Hadi Trust exists, HathiTrust has been able to offer a number of really interesting and innovative services on top of that, that community control of the underlying digitized files, the most important of which during the pandemic was what they called their emergency Temporary access program where they basically lit up access for all of their member libraries to any book that their that the member had in its physical stacks. Their users could access digitally when their physical stacks were closed during you know during the early days of the pandemic. So uh, you know a a, a a nation of of research libraries, humanists, all of a sudden, uh, and and other scholars too, but certainly especially humanists, had digital access to. To their collections, where before you know they pr- possibly only would have been been looking at print versions, it was quite transformative and really um, softened the blow of of the pandemic uh, in in a number of major humanistic research fields.
0: I guess what other lessons do you take away from um, from this history that you've documented?
1: Well, I think I think the the lessons that we have taken away are largely about. Um, collaboration, which we've already talked about some of the ways that collaboration can and can sometimes can't work within 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 the academic community. And and I think as well, we've taken away some lessons about leadership, I, I think the the ways in which different kinds of leaders contributed or could have contributed to moving the needle forward, the difference between more pragmatic styles of leadership um which were ultimately the 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 more effective some of the more effective ones that we saw um there were other forms of leadership as well um yeah so i think there's some really interesting lessons about leadership in this in this story as well
0: well well great well thank you so much for um for sharing and walking us through this book it's really interesting um and uh, i was covering this as it went but i think a lot of people may not really even remember the story or realize how close maybe um, we came to a a, a kind of a digital library that is still kind of a dream, I suppose, um, of librarians and others. Um, but just how to, you know, set up who controls it and what the rules are, are just still elusive, it sounds like.
1: It was fun to walk back through, through this recent history. So much changed, but so much more could have. And we're still walking down this path and we'll see how, how access increases in the future.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you, Roger. I appreciate the time.
1: Thanks so much, Jeff. Nice to talk to you.
0: This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we do bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please subscribe to make sure you catch every episode. And take a minute to leave us a rating or a review or tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung, Young or by email, jeff at edsurge.com. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.